Particle would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of this land we record on, the Wadjuk people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm your host, Rose Kerr, and this season, we're talking all things environmental. Today, I'm joined by archaeobotanist Emily Dot. She stopped by to chat about uncovering the secrets of environment's past. What do you actually do? Um, I'm an archaeologist and I'm a specific kind of archaeologist because I'm an archaeobotanist uh, looking at botanical remains that we find when we do excavations in archaeological sites. Um, And archaeological sites, of course, are um, places where people used to live in the past. And when you look at a botanical sample from an archaeological perspective, what do those samples or fossils actually look like? Um, So they're not very impressive because most of the time they're pieces of wood charcoal that can be quite small um, or they're fragments of seeds, um, more rarely of fruits. Sometimes we actually have the entire ones, but it's very rare. And very often they are charred. That's why they've been preserved. So it's very rare to find desiccated or waterlogged remains, which are actually looking more like what you see every day. Is it rare to find those kinds of samples because normally organic matter breaks down? It is rare unless it's charred. Mm. So charcoal is actually one of the most widespread type of remains that you find in archaeological sites. Uh, also because people make fire. They've, they've been making fire since before we were humans, actually, even if before our own species. So, yeah, everywhere there was human people, there were fire. So you always, almost always have wood charcoal. How do you get to become an archaeobotanist? I first wanted to be an archaeologist, but then when I started learning at university about the different things that you can do as an archaeologist, I became really interested in the questions around past relationship between humans and our environment. And and then to be able to answer this question, you need to look at the actual remains from the environment. So you can either become a zooarchaeologist, for example, looking at bone remains from animals or plant remains. Basically, there are other options, but these are the two widest ones. Um, And I became really fascinated by botanical remains and how you can identify them, look at them under the microscope and what that means in terms of um, how people use the plants in the past. Has the relationship between people and the environment changed a lot over time? Um, Yeah, I guess the moment when it became really, when it changed a lot was first when people started manipulating plants, but also not just the plant, but the forest themselves. And that led to what we call domestication and then agriculture. Um, So that was the first step. And then more recently, um, during the industrial period in the 19th century, we really accelerated the way that we were impacting um, these plant environments around us. Um, And so, yeah, the acceleration really happened in the 200 last years, I guess. And what kind of evidence is there for those changes? How can you tell? Uh, Well, so... 
there are lots of different evidence, but in terms of plants, just looking at these remains that we find in archaeological sites and identifying the plants, that gives us an idea of the type of um, vegetation that was growing around. And then we can link that to the time, the period of occupation, and the type of activities that people were conducting. Um, so, for example, when, if we look at hunter-gatherers, we'll be looking at um, their hearth remains from um, everyday fires and sometimes from their cooking as well. Mm. Uh, but by looking at the remains, we have an idea of the forest that people were visiting to gather this wood, for example, or to gather the seeds they were using. Um, and we can see how that changed through times. But then also if we're looking at industrial sites um, and, for example, metal production sites and the type of wood they were using <gasps> to create um, the heating process for the metal, uh, for example, in South, Southeast Asia or in Europe, um, we also have a way of reconstructing this forest and we can see how they started losing in terms of diversity mm -hmm. of the taxa that were present. Um, and also we can recognize the size of the wood that was being burnt, so that also gives us an idea of what people were using and how they were managing these wood resources. But then if it's only one type of remain, it doesn't mean a lot, so you need to cross that with other type of botanical remains like pollen, for example, mm -hmm. but also, as I was saying, bone remains um, and sediments um, and paleoclimatic type of reconstructions. And when you put all of that together, that's how you can tell the story wow. of how people were interacting with their environment. It's like collecting lots of different clues. Yes. Is yeah. it challenging to identify different plant species from archaeological remains? Um, yes, but there have been techniques that have been developed. Um, so what you need, first of all, is a very good reference collection. So that means, for example, um, I've been when I started working in the Pacific and in Australia, there wasn't a lot of people who had been doing uh, my special kind of speciality in archaeobotany, which is wood charcoal. <laughs> um, so I first had to go in the forest, basically, and wow. collect wood samples um, with botanists who could tell me who were the living trees, because mm -hmm. I know dead plants, but I don't know living plants that well. <laughs> um, so I would cut some wood samples from each of these trees and then burn them myself. Um, so that I could look at them under the microscope and see what they look like after they've been burnt and what type of anatomical features they have, describe them, and then when I have my archaeological wood charcoal, I can compare them with what I have in my reference collection. Um, and it's, it's almost like if you look at people in a room and you can recognize faces, um, and that's how it works with wood charcoal, but you can do it in a very quantitative way by just describing the anatomy, the vessels and the rays and these kind of things. That's fascinating. So you almost have to do your own experiments yeah. to find out stuff that already is there. Yes. Yeah. That's so cool. What's the role of arts in your job? Well, I guess we, in archaeology, we are part of social sciences yeah. um, because we're looking at societies, but we're also part of arts because all these questions that we are investigating um, ultimately um, kind of go in the direction of, you know, big questions and reflection about what it is to be human mm. uh, and how um, you interact with the world around you and with other people. Um, and, and there are different ways of answering and looking at these questions. Uh, and you can do it through different forms of arts as well as science. And and with archaeology, for example, we start with some very 
um, scientific quantitative um, data. But then once you have all this information about the plants, for example, that people were there, you have to tell a story. Mm. And that's probably when you start getting into the arts kind of thing. Because if you just expose you know, a table with your results, it's not going to have a big impact. You need to use that to tell a story about how past. And so you have to make an interpretation at some point. Do you feel like you know a lot about humans? Uh, I feel like... I know what could be considered a lot, but in comparison to everything we don't know, <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't, yeah, it's, it's still very small, like, and especially archaeology, because it's, I always say it's, it's a bit like a big puzzle where you have only a few of the pieces of the puzzles and a lot of them are missing, and you have to create your understanding of this story of the past with only these little pieces, and sometimes new pieces will come and it will change the whole story. Uh, but that's what is exciting, I guess, about it. Does it happen often that the whole story changes? I don't think it happens that often, but it does happen, you know, in every generation of archaeologists. Um, so that's probably fairly often in itself. It's kind of exciting. Yeah. Keeps it, keeps it fresh. Yes. <laughs> I've read a little bit about your Pacific Matildas project. Could you explain that to us a little bit more? Um, yes, so it's a new project and it's another side of my research, um, which is not about applying archaeology, but about understanding our discipline by understanding its history and so how archaeology developed as a Western science, especially how it was applied in the Pacific and Australia. And so I've been working on this um, for the past five years. Um, and by working on this project, I'm, it became very evident that it was a lot more difficult to find information about the first women who were archaeologists or before you call them archaeologists. So I, I thought we really needed to develop a specific project to spend time, first of all, looking for these women in the archives and then also how to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. Because actually some of these women... Um, are present in the archives. It's not even that they're not represented in the historical documents, but their stories kind of became erased of the narratives that oh. we tell each other about the way that our discipline developed. And there are lots of reasons for that. Um, not just the fact that, you know, we like to forget women. It's also because they had less rights, for example. Um, so it was harder for them to access diplomas and to access actual um, positions, professional positions or to sign, for example, as authors oh. on works that they have been doing with their husbands very often. Um, and so that means that the generation after them would quickly forget their contribution, even though a lot of them were quite well recognized by their colleagues yeah, um, okay. and all the male colleagues who had a better reputation. They would all recognize the work done by these women collaborators, but it's after that that they kind of disappear from huh. the narratives. Why do you think it's important that we recognize them now? Well, because they played a role in the development of our science and they had an influence on the way that we are working today. Um, but also, as to the, today, um, for example, I became an archaeologist and today there are a lot more women than men as students in archaeology, which is an interesting change yeah. of demographic. But you don't have any role model of women in the past because all the names that we keep learning about are all these important men in our history. So you need to also have 
I think these stories about what you know women did and how they managed to do it, or how it was you know they had to go through some specific struggles, um, and also by looking at this kind of you know hidden figures, it directly brings you to also the role of indigenous um, collaborators mm-hmm. uh, who were you know very often experts in their communities about um, the past. Uh, of these communities, so it also brings you to other type of figures that also needs to be um, represented again in these stories. Yeah, and hopefully, I imagine by going back and recognizing those people, we can encourage the same kind of balance now. Yes, of course, it will. Yeah, hopefully, have an impact on having a more um, equitable type of um, development and relationships in the science that we do today, especially in you know regions like Australia and the Pacific Islands. How do you think we can get more diversity in science? Well, first of all, by having this type of stories with a more diverse type of role models, um, but then also um, using these stories to, um, I guess, understand what worked and what didn't work and how we can try to develop better um, dynamics uh, and and change the way that we consider science should be done uh, and with more discussion basically uh, with different kind of people involved in the work and the communities that you work with for example. Who were you before you did this research? Before I did the research on the Pacific Matildas? Before you even started working as a researcher. So first, uh, I was a New Caledonian child. (laughs) So I grew up on the island of New Caledonia. Popping into your ears just for a moment. Emily is from New Caledonia. It's a French territory made up of little islands in the Pacific Ocean. It's roughly between Fiji and the coast of Queensland. Uh, and then I was um, a student in, I didn't start biochemistry, I started by history mm. and cultural anthropology. Uh, and then I went into archaeology. But interestingly enough, when I was a child, I wanted to be an archaeologist. So it was really like kind of coming back to where I wanted to be, I guess. Yeah. Do you remember the moment of inspiration where you were like, yes, I'm definitely going to do archaeology. That's what I'm going to focus on. I guess there were two moments. Uh, There was the moment when I participated in field work. Just after I finished high school, I went to see the archaeologist who was working in New Caledonia at the time, Christophson, and he really um, nicely invited me to join the next field work he was going to do. And that was a fantastic experience. Uh, but even after that, I was like, ah, I really want to do that, but I don't want to close any door by mm. becoming specialized. So I'm going to start by studying history because it's larger and do these kind of things. But then after three years at university, I was invited by Christophe Sand again, who, who was really important in my decisions, um, to attend a conference that he was organizing in New Caledonia, where there was a lot of archaeologists working from Australia and mm. the US and France, all these different really highly recognized specialists um, who came to um, present their research. And that was 
a fantastic experience and I was like okay this time I'm gonna <laughs> ba go back to Paris because I had to go to France wow. to go to university I was like I'm going back to Paris and I'm doing archaeology of the Pacific you know like very yeah <laughs> specifically this ready to be specialized yeah yeah <laughs> what is an unrelated skill that you've learned through your research or an unexpected skill maybe unexpected skill mm. I know how to. <laughs> um, I know how to sieve very well. <laughs> That's a good Which, one. yeah, I didn't know before. Um, you kind of also learn how to, um, you know, leave with um, the least you can when you have to camp on an island for several days. But I kind of knew that before because of my parents. So maybe I didn't. It wasn't that unexpected. Why did um, you know it? Because of your parents? Oh, because my parents were very outdoorish oh, kind of yes. people. So yeah. I already had this experience. And that's actually one of the aspects I really liked in archaeology, that you could have this very nerd kind of side with all the books and the libraries and the, um, the lab. But then you also had all these outdoor, dirty, you know, things, adventures. So you had these two sides. What is field work in archaeology like? Do you go out with like a little spade and <laughs> dig around? Like what, what is it like? Um, it depends the type of site that you're working on because uh, there's a wide variety. So there is the adventurous type where you have to walk for several days to find a site uh, in the jungle, in the mountains. Um, and there is the site where you have to excavate very carefully with your little brush uh, when you have bones, for example. Uh, but then there is also the site where you have like big structures and so you have to use a lot of muscle force mm. um, and can, you know, basically destroy everything that's around. That's fun. <laughs> the, not the archaeological remains, <laughs> but, you know, the earth around and this kind of thing. So there are a lot of different aspects to the fieldwork, yeah. Did you ever expect your research to take you so far across the world? Um, I think I hoped for it, uh, yes, because I, I knew that I had to go to France, first of all, to go to university uh, to study archaeology. Um, so that was one first move internationally that I wanted to do. Um, and then by working in the Pacific, I knew that I was going to have to travel to some of the islands, of course, to work in the field. And I also wanted to be able to work with Australia because um, I knew that some of the best centers uh, in Pacific studies are in Australia. So I hoped it would help me to see all these different places. Um, and it has. Um, so I'm very lucky for that um, and it's been really fantastic um, and I hope I can do even more of course yeah. absolutely is that quite a commonly held thing that people like about studying archaeology is that usually what people aim to do I think so but it depends what also you you decide to do so if you are an Australian and you become really interested in in the archaeology of Australia you'll be traveling a lot in Australia, uh, then you have conferences that can, you know, make you travel around the world. Um, but it's, yeah, it depends what kind of field you start getting interested mm. um, into. And then also um, working for a community that you live in can also be very rewarding. And so 
I'm now in Australia uh, because of life <laughs> events, but also because Australia was really good for Pacific studies um, and it provided um, a really good um, intellectual context for me to work, but also um, just socially, like I, I like living in Australia much more than in France as someone who grew up in the Pacific. Um, so there is also this kind of thing, but I often think, maybe also because I'm starting to grow older, that it would be even more meaningful for me to live in one of the Pacific Islands where I work um, and to have maybe less of um, you know, an academic publication record, but more of a community um, relationship in the project I do and, and in presenting my results, for example. Um, so you can also have a very local uh, career, mm. but it doesn't mean that it's not gonna be as meaningful or impactful, I think. We're going to jump across to some questions that are a little bit lighthearted. What is the weirdest thing you've ever uncovered? The weirdest things I've ever uncovered? Mm, maybe it's insect remains. Oh, what yeah. do insect remains look like? So you'll, you'll find like just a part of an insect body, for example. So when you're excavating, yeah. you, you won't be able to find it. It, it would be in the sediment that we keep. So when we're excavating, we always keep all the sediment and then we sieve the sediment or we float it. Um, and this is when you start finding really weird stuff, actually. Um, and sometimes you would find like, you know, half the part of um, an ant, for example, uh, which is actually not from the present day, but an ancient ant. Um, and they can be very interesting because they can tell you the type of um, insect that were living at this time yeah. and so the type of environment that was surrounding the site at, at this time. Uh, but that can be a bit strange to find. Yeah, that's not what you're looking for. How do you know that it's insect remains and not just like a piece of dirt? Yes, uh, <laughs> so that's... The, one of the, the one of the part of the job after the excavation is going back in the lab and looking at everything that mm. was in your sediment. Um, and so even though you've been sieving everything, then you have to sit for long hours um, at the lab and then just sort to everything. Wow. So you've got little remains of plants, little remains of bones, little remains of um, lithic tools that have been you know, broken down really small, um, all kind of sediment things. Uh, and you'll have insect remains also that I think for a long time we're not, we're just being discarded. Yeah. Uh, but then some specialists with the proper background uh, started saying, you need to actually look at that because it's going to tell you a lot of things about you know, your site and the environment. Mm. Um, and some of these are not, you know, modern infiltrations, but they're actually as archaeological remains as well. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of non-scientists do you work with? Mm, non-scientists, well, first of all, we always work with the communities and a lot of these people are not scientists, even though, as I said before, um, a number of these people are experts um, in local terms, in terms of their history or their environment. Mm. Um, I also have to work quite a lot with people who know a lot about plants when I do um, the reference collection, for example. Um, we also try to work with artists, I mean, real artists, not like me, who <laughs> I think, um, for example, some of the most exciting things that I'm 
kind of envisaging for um, the best way of um, disseminating the results of my research is working with people who can um, draw and write cartoons yeah. uh, because I think it's a really fantastic and exciting way to um, expose your research. Um, so working with this type of creative people is, is really exciting, I think. I can totally imagine that. Yeah. If you could time travel to any time, when would you go? Um, I think I would go back 3,000 years ago when um, the first people who entered um, the part of the Pacific, which is called Remote Oceania, sailed to the islands of the Western Pacific. Um, so there is a specific type of material cultures that has been associated to this time period, um, which is called Lapita culture. And they created, for example, really beautiful pots with very beautiful, intrinsic decorations. Um, and we find them in the islands as the first layer of human presence. And we know that these people were incredible sailors because they they were the first to do like long distance sailing anywhere in the world. Um, And so they went and they explored the Western Pacific and all these islands. And then after them, all their descendants went to Polynesia. So I would go back to 3000 years ago, be one of these Lapita people on the boats arriving in New Caledonia and discovering this island for the first time. Oh, it would have been so exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Is it ever... I guess maybe sad's not the right word, but is is ever kind of humbling to see remains of people who lived so long ago? What's yes. that like? So I haven't worked on a lot of sites with human remains, but it's always something very special to find human bones. Um, and sometimes there are children bones as well, which really, I don't know why, but it kind of brings even more... Um, humanity into you because suddenly you realize it's yes there were real people with real lives you know and so for example a child was dead and you don't really know why until all the studies are done Um, so it's it's very emotional I think to find that Um, and also Today, we're a lot better at dealing uh, with much more respect and dignity uh, with this type of remains. Um, And as soon as you find human remains, you stop the excavation and talk with the community Mm. and how they want us to work with the remains. Do they want us to stop the excavation or continue but leave the bones in place? Or are they interested by what we can tell with all the modern you know, DNA analysis or the type of analysis we can do and take a little bone and then bring it back. Um, and so everything that happens with that is also really humbling and interesting in terms of human relations. Yeah. What's something interesting about archaeobiology in Oceania specifically? What I find exciting, uh, because I I like the botanical type of remains, is um, the story that we are discovering about the way that people were managing forests and trees in particular, and the importance of trees Mm. in Pacific societies um, throughout history. And so how they moved some trees with them uh, from one island to the other. So the breadfruit, for example, has been moved from Papua New Guinea all the way to all of the Pacific Islands. Wow. Um, because it was a very important staple for people. Uh, but also another species, which is called the cordyline, came from Southeast Asia, uh, and people introduced it to 
Papua New Guinea and then all of the Pacific Islands, um, but for ceremonial reasons. So a lot of the trees are important for food as resources or timber, but also as symbolic um, representation. And they are planted in specific ways in habitation sites or ritual sites. Um, So then that means that trees and the forests become gardens, not just in terms of agriculture, but also in terms of creating cultural landscapes mm. um, and, and sometimes temples that are vegetal temples. Uh, and I really love this, um, this interaction that people in the Pacific had created with the trees around them. Yeah, oh, that's so exciting. Can you see some of the effects of that today if you were walking around and exploring? Yes. So every time in New Caledonia, when you walk in the forest, there are some specific trees. If you see them, you know that there's going to be an archaeological site oh. right under. Uh, in, in Polynesia, uh, every temple remains that still remains today are always associated with one or two types of specific trees. Uh, and so these trees are very old and themselves have regrown from the seeds of the first tree that was planted there by the people. So it's a very specific connection uh, between, you know, the first people, these trees, and the the actual temples that was being built there. Um, so yes, they're totally the trees are totally information in terms of um, human presence in the landscape. What can learning about the environment through archaeology teach us about the future? Mm. Well, I think it it can teach us a lot um, because it can help us understand mistakes that have been done and that we don't want to do again. Um, So typically any stories about deforestation is the kind of really bad example we don't want to follow again. Uh, But also, um, you know, examples of things that people have been doing properly and that we would like to keep doing. Um, So if I think about the Pacific, for example, uh, people have learned to use the diversity that exists. So there is a very high botanical diversity in terms of taxa that are present, Mm. and they've learned to cultivate this diversity. Um, And that's why for Europeans arriving in the Pacific in the 18th century, they thought everything was a jungle and a native forest. But now that we understand better, uh, and that we've been able to listen more to indigenous people as well, we realize that a lot of these wild forests are totally cultivated gardens, but they've been doing that by using the diversity and cultivating this diversity. Uh, that you know is the way that tropical forests work, um, and that's how they produce the best. Um, so that's a very good and important example for us to follow, I think, for example. Yeah, that's fascinating. How do people normally react when you tell them that you work in archaeobotany? Uh, well, archaeobotany is, is always a bit of a question, so they don't really understand if I'm doing, you know, botanical studies or archaeological things. And archaeology is very often confused with paleontology as well, so dinosaurs uh, and these kind of things. And then a lot of people tell me I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a child. <laughs> Do you say why didn't you? Yes, some, I mean, if I have time to talk with the person, I ask yeah. this question. Um, and I, and I try to tell them, you know, you can still be an archaeologist because you can st- still go back to university and, and do that. And we have a number of students in archaeology who are mature age students. Um, and sometimes they're actually really good because they bring with them their experience from, you know, their previous life yeah. that they can apply as, 
you know, specific skills. Uh, and also they see things differently uh, and they have different questions uh, that they want to investigate. So it's, it's also very good to go back, you know, after a while into your first love. <laughs> I agree. What are some of the misconceptions you think people might have about your role or your research? Um, so first of all, I think there is this general idea, you know, that you look at the past and archaeology and paleontology are the same thing. So all the deep past is kind of put together in one same period. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, I think there is a lot of treasure hunting uh, as well. Uh, Indiana Jones, <laughs> yeah. you know, yes, uh, this kind of, of uh, cliche ideas. Um, and some people still tell me, uh, I mean, they are still surprised that we can do archaeology in Australia or in the Pacific. Yeah. They think there is nothing to find. Um, so you have to do a little bit of explanation around the fact, you know, that people have, have been in Australia for 60,000 years and there is a lot of archaeology, yeah. Aboriginal archaeology um, going on and in the Pacific Islands as well. Um, and, and it's not just... Um, small remains but actually sometimes really impressive mm. you know big temples that you can also find um, so maybe there is a lack of uh, knowledge about the past basically in the region yeah absolutely and to finish up with I would love to know your favorite fun facts that you've learned in your research well there was one fact that made me you know, I had a little bit of an ironic <laughs> um, love a little a while ago, uh, which is not about the Pacific specifically, but archaeology in general and in Europe. And they did all these very expensive DNA studies about all human remains found in Europe um, when there was the first movement of agriculturalists coming into Europe. And they realized that um, women were moving a lot more than men. And so that women were the one marrying really far away from their original families. And so that they were probably the one who were, who did this advance of the front of um, Indo-European languages and also agricultural knowledge. Wow. Um, so it, it kind of comes back to the Pacific Matildas and all the gender bias, I guess, with suddenly changing the image of, you know, these people entering with all the knowledge that we are we inherited as you know descendant of Indo-Europeans and it was all these women being married to distant families and who actually introduced all of these wow. ideas. Oh women deserve more credit. <laughs> Absolutely deserve more credit. Well thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub of Western Australia on Wadjuk Country.